thus far, we have looked at the culture of Mesopotamia. We have looked at the culture of the Fertile Crescent as a whole, the history of it. We examined the journey of Abraham and his people into the land of Canaan, down to Egypt, back again. We examined their time in Egypt, their wanderings through the Sinai Desert to the north, back towards Israel. We looked at the conquest of the land. We've looked at the period of the judges. Last week, we looked at the period of the monarchs of Israel. And today, we're going to look at the period of the exile. And this is going to be the second of five lessons we've done so far that very much are based in the Bible. And what I think is helpful is, um, but there's lots of interesting things I can teach on, but I want you to see this in the Bible. I want you to sort of lock it down. When you're reading your Bible, I want you to think to yourself, oh yeah, okay, this this makes sense. This prophet is clearly an exilic prophet. This prophet is a pre-exilic prophet. This clearly is a northern prophet or a southern prophet. So I'm going to do a part of my lesson tonight. Several times, we're going to get into small groups or couplets, and we're going to look at the prophetic books of the Bible, at least the ones that had messages to the Jews. There's a couple of them, like uh, Jonah kind of doesn't count because Jonah's going to Nineveh. He's not prophesying to Judah or Israel. Um, But we're going to look at the prophets that are prophesying to Judah or Israel and try to place them in sequence. That way, when you're later reading reading those books of the Bible or studying them, their message will make more sense to you. That's my goal tonight. So uh, to get us started, we're going to look at um, the invasion of Assyria and the aftermath. So if you refer to your maps, so we just have, it's very simple to draw the land of Israel. You just kind of draw a line like this and something that looks like that and more or less you got it. Okay, so this is the Mediterranean Sea here. This is okay, Sea of Galilee. What's the one in the south? Okay, so this is known as the Dead or Salt Sea. What's this area of Israel known as? down this area the Nijev what direction on this map is Egypt okay so Egypt's down this way what direction would Assyria Babylon be okay northeast so they're up here And uh, if you look at the top of the sea of uh, the Dead Sea, roughly, you just go into about center, and that's Jerusalem. Okay, so that's where you kind of can locate it on a map. Now, there's two exiles that we have to talk about because we already discovered last week that right around here, the land 
the kingdom split. We have the southern kingdom, which was composed of what two tribes? Um, well, you're partially right. It encompasses the original land of Simeon, but it actually the Simeonites were to the north. So Judah and Benjamin. Okay, so Judah and Benjamin stayed in the southern kingdom, and that and you have ten tribes up here. So ten here, two here. Now these guys were deported southern kingdom. And to be honest, they had better land. They had better land. They grew faster. They had closer proximity to Assyria and Babylon for purposes of commerce and trade. And so whenever a battle happened or some of these marauding tribes came through or even some of the superpowers, Egypt or Assyria... Generally speaking, Judah sort of got left alone because they were kind of small, kind of weak, not as powerful. I mean, really, do, do you want the Niger Desert? Like, in and around Jerusalem is not great land. Uh, what are you going to do with the salt sea unless you, you know, like salt and vinegar chips, right? So, the the northern the northern tribes were the ones that were attacked and. Taken. This is an awfully big cup of coffee. Is this decaf? Okay, good. Uh, I'll be up all night. So the, the 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 top the top the upper kingdom was attacked by Assyria, and later the southern kingdom was attacked by Babylon. So let me give you a little bit of further information on the invasion of Assyria. So this relates only to the northern kingdom. Then we're going to look at two northern prophets. Then we're going to look at the invasion of the southern kingdom and the various prophets that they had. So the exile that is known as the Assyrian exile actually took place over approximately 20 years. Over approximately 20 years. And... During that period of time, at least four Assyrian kings ruled in Assyria. Chances are, if you've studied world history, you've heard of every one of these names. So the first was Tiglath-Pileser. I'll just make sure I get the spelling right. The third now, just because he was the third doesn't mean he's in any way related to the second or the first. Sometimes these guys would reach back into history a thousand years and grab the name of some famous king like Sargon and apply it to themselves because it was a cool name. So he was the fellow that first attacked the northern kingdom, Samaria, it was sometimes called. Then there was Shalmaneser, Then there was Sargon, uh, this one was the second, who wasn't even of the same ethnicity as Sargon the first. And then, you've probably heard this word if you've read your Bible, Sennacherib. Does he ring a bell in your head? And if so, based on what event?
Yeah, yeah, that's good timing. Okay, later, Sennacherib tried to attack Judah under what king? I'll give you a hint. He had, he was going to die. He prayed. God gave him 15 more years. Hezekiah. So he attacked Judah, specifically Jerusalem. Do you remember they're actually shouting at each other over the wall? And um, in the middle of the night, God wiped out a bunch of his guys, and he basically hightailed it back to Nineveh. So God rescued Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib. When he got back to Nineveh, by the way, you might recall, two of his sons cut him down while he was worshiping in the temple of his God and fled to Ararat. And his third son, who was only a boy at the time, was actually appointed as the king, lasted for about a year. He was nine years old. Someone killed him because they wanted the throne. But these four kings, these are all Assyrian kings. Okay, so that's these guys. And prior to the rise of Babylon, Assyria was the world power. So these fellows would go by names like, believe it or not, king of the universe, king of the world, king of the earth, king of all kings. And this is why one of the descriptions of Yahweh God is king of kings. Because the world rulers of that time would utilize that language to refer to themselves because they had conquered the sort of then known world. The major superpowers were under them. They were like the superpower. Uh, and so these guys would adopt these magnificent names for themselves and uh, for a couple hundred years basically ruled the world. So 722 is the date that you have to remember. If you're studying Old Testament history, 722 is a critical date for you to remember. And 722 is... Not the first, but it's the last time when an Israeli king was able to hold out against the Assyrian army. Again, for about 20 years, the Assyrians had come in, they'd attack different villages, they'd deport people. They'd attack again, they'd deport people. They'd attack again, they'd deport people. Sometimes the kings would buckle, okay, I'm, I'll be your vassal. Remember our con the concept of vassalage last week? I'll be your vassal. Four or five years would go by, and they'd rebel. So the army would come back, and they'd attack again. But it wasn't until 722 BC that they were able to take Samaria. What is Samaria? What's the significance of the city of Samaria? Correct. It was the capital of the northern kingdom. You're going to need to remember this when you're looking at some of the prophetic books later on this evening. So then Sennacherib, as I mentioned earlier, tries to attack Judah, but they're miraculously delivered. You can read about that in 2 Kings 19. Now, after the Assyrians had deported large numbers of Israelites from Israel, let's not assume that he deported everybody. He probably really only deported a small fraction of the people. But... Um, what was the result? Well, a lot of the people that were left over, potentially hundreds of thousands, fled. They fled to Ammon, they fled to Moab, they fled to Egypt, they fled to the north, some of them fled to Babylon. So everybody sort of bails out, right? 
So even though the Assyrians didn't like count up everybody and take them, they took the nobles, the rich, the educated, the king, the king's sons, basically everybody that knows what they're doing. And the land is sort of left in a shambles. And then what they would do is they would import people uh, from other kingdoms that they had conquered to resettle the land. So they'd import all these different people. They could have been from you know, all over the Fertile Crescent or beyond. And um, the people that would then start to mix. Now, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 1, there's an interesting event that's recorded, especially given the fact that Judah and Israel were usually fighting each other. Hezekiah. Who is he? King of Judah. He has... um, He's celebrating the Passover. The Passover commemorates the deliverance from Egypt. And it says, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh are tribes in Israel, but they were really large tribes. So sometimes they'd sort of be separated out with their invites. In fact, in the prophet Hosea's book, Uh, Ephraim was such a large tribe in Israel that sometimes he just calls all of Israel Ephraim, just like Judah and Benjamin are called Judah, but really it's Judah and Benjamin, but the large tribe sort of gets the name. Nevertheless, he asks them to come to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem to keep the Passover. So here we have, these guys are being attacked, they've been deported. This guy down here sends a message to the remaining inhabitants, says, you know, more or less tough luck. If you want to come down and worship with us, you can. So here we see a little bit of empathy, a little bit of uh, brotherhood being demonstrated where he invites the northern, uh, remaining northern inhabitants down to celebrate this significant Passover event in, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, in terms of numbers, interestingly, we actually have a number. Archaeologists have looked at the records of the Assyrian kings, and I'll just round the number off. But the Assyrians claim to have taken 27,000 Israelites back to uh, Assyria. Really, that's not that many. But again, that's the cream of the crop. We don't know what the population of Israel would have been at the time. I mean, presumably, it would have been at least a few million people. So 27,000 of them go to Assyria in the north. And the reason why these tribes are now called the Ten Lost Tribes, you may have heard that language, is because they never returned en masse. I I assume that you're aware of that. But the Ten Northern Tribes up till the year 2015 have never returned to the land of Israel since 722 BC. They're just sort of gone. So they're obviously mixed in. They formed other people groups. Um, some of them formed communities, Jewish communities called diaspora in various countries around the Fertile Crescent. 
and uh, others were just intermingled. So there's a lot of people have theories that the, like the modern day Iraqis, those are actually the Jews of the 10 tribes or, you know, maybe the Kurds or there's different, all different theories as to what other people groups they may have become, but essentially they, 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 they were taken away and they did not return. The 10 tribes, yeah. So anybody that returned to Israel after the second exile was either from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin. So all of the Israelites in Israel today that can claim to be Jewish are from Judah or Benjamin only. And if they are from another tribe, they would have no way of proving that because those tribes just sort of over time disintegrated and absorbed into the population. They, did, they never had a legitimate Levitical priesthood, except that most of the Levites lived within Judah because of Jerusalem. So the Levites, this is, that's a, maybe a, a good thing worth mentioning. Even though there's two tribes officially living in the south, a large percent, maybe not a large percentage, but there would have been a sizable representation of Levitical priests there too. But because Levite never, Levi never functioned as its own nation, they never were identified as such. So that would be, modern Jews would also then, we could say, be descended from the Levites. Who are the Ashkenazi Jews? So the Ashkenazi Jews is just a broad, terminolo broad terminology for Jews of European origin. The Shepherdim are ones from Spain. So the two major groups to repopulate modern-day Israel are European Jews, Polish, Ukrainian, Russian, British, you know. And the ones from Spain, I might be mispronouncing it, but Sephardim or Shepardim is the name of the Spanish Jews, and they sort of came back. And then, of course, there's black Jews that came later from Ethiopia and whatnot. Sorry? Se that's what you call them? Sephardis? Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Now, when we say that they're European Jews, they're European like after the time of Christ. Like after the time of Christ, during various migrations, they would have migrated up into Europe or over to Spain, which is part of Europe too, and then eventually come back. But those groups wouldn't have existed during this period of time. It is possible that small groups of the northern tribes would may have been released or fled at different points and formed small communities that could have been become part of the Ashkenazi Jews, but there's no real evidence or proof for it. So. Okay, so we're going to look at just two northern prophets because there's only two. R writing prophets. There's lots of oral prophets, preaching prophets, but there's only two writing prophets. So um, what we'll do is just in groups of, uh, why don't we just kind of go like this, like this side's one group, this is another group. Don, take your pick, you can go one way or the other. Just sort of down these tables, divide up into groups of two or three or four. And here are the, t the two passages I want you to look at. Everybody on this side I want you to write down Hosea 1.1, Hosea 4.1, and Hosea 5.3. Everybody on the other side, Amos 1.1, 1, 1, 
and Amos 4.1. And I just want to give you like five or six minutes. So we've got to keep this snappy. I want you to look at uh, these passages and then just do a quick overview of the other passages or of, of the book as a whole. And there's your question. When did these guys live? So you're going to have to refer to your notes from last week. Who did they write to? And what was their core message? So you're just going to need to thumb through. You're not going to be able to read. You're not even going to be able to read 20 verses. You just have to thumb through the book and try to answer those three questions very briefly. One side's doing Hosea. The other side is doing um, Amos. Okay. Okay, just a couple minutes left.
Okay, you almost done? You almost done, ladies? That I'll figure it out. Okay, so let's, uh, let's come back together and we'll see what you found out. If your group didn't quite get as far as you wanted, maybe someone else will have. Okay, so let's look at Hosea. First of all, we're just looking at Hosea and Amos. Um, what did you find out about his, his time frame? He, ex he prophesied during what? What did you guys find out? Sorry? Round 722. How do you know that? Okay. Okay, so if we go back to the notes that I shared with you last week, does those dates line up with the names of the kings you looked at? This group, are you all in agreement? I'm not going to thumb through it all myself, but are you guys in agreement? Okay. So, we're going to put him down as a 8th century prophet. Okay? So, the 700s. Who was he writing to? Who was he writing to? Okay, any, any differences of opinion on that? Any reference to Judah in his book? Where? Obviously during the days of the kings of Judah imply that he was a northern prophet probably writing to both the northern and southern nations. Okay? So, north and likely the south would have received his message as well. What was his basic message? Stop doing what? Okay, stop you guys need to tell me. Okay, that's pretty, yeah. Love God, yeah, okay. <laughs> let's, let's like hone in a little more. Okay. But let's, because that's a, obviously he's not, like prostituting is, is the, um, the imagery, but what is it they're doing? Idolatry, right? Okay. So, the whole thing, Gomer, his wife, is taken and she becomes a prostitute. 
bears three children. All of them have significant names. Jezreel means scattered. Loruhama means you're not loved. Loami means you're not my people. She gets herself into debt. She's naked on a slave block. He's got a this dignified man has to go and buy his adulterous wife back. And God uses that as an image of how Israel has treated him. And the gospel is found in the third chapter. The gospel is summed up for us in Hosea 3. Hosea 3 is the John 3 of the Old Testament. Okay, Amos. What did you find out about Amos? When is he... 783. Okay, so we'll put him down as the 8th century. And who's he prophesying to? Northern? Any Anybody else? Okay, so he is a true northern prophet. What's his basic message? Seek justice. Okay, so be a people of justice because... Yahweh is a God of justice. This is a huge theme among the prophets, a call for justice. So folks, these are the the two clearly northern prophets, one of which is probably dually prophesying to the south. And they're writing in the same century that the Assyrian exile took place. Now, when it comes to northern prophets, we don't have any exilic prophets and we don't have any post-exilic prophets because... We don't really know what happened once the northern tribes went into captivity and they never came back, so there's no post-exilic prophets. All of these other prophets we're going to look at are southern prophets, either pre, during, or post-exile. And to know whether they're writing pre, during, or post-exile has a huge bearing in how you read their books and understand their message and the purposes of their messages. So before we look at the southern prophets then... I want to give you some information pertaining to the invasion of Judah. So 722 is sort of like the final rub. Sennacherib takes Samaria, takes them three years, and finally there is no Israel anymore as a nation. So a century and a bit goes by, and Assyria and Egypt um, fall to the Babylonians. So if you look at our map, I think I gave you a map on the back of your pages there. Assyria is starting to wane. They form an alliance with Egypt. And they try to gang up against the Babylonians because the Babylonians are now flexing their muscles. They're becoming the, uh, the next sort of superpower. And they keep losing to the Babylonians. So the Assyrian city of Nineveh falls to the coalition of the Egyptians. Or sorry, uh, the the Assyrian city of Nineveh falls to the Babylonians in 722. So they move their capital to Haran. Two years later, it falls. They move to Carchemish. Five years later, it falls. Now, just a little note. You may recall, during King Josiah's reign in the south, that he went up to Megiddo and died in battle in his late 30s. And he dies at the hands of the pharaoh. 
Now this pharaoh was Pharaoh Necho of Necho II of Egypt. And what happened was this the Egyptian pharaoh was heading to the north to assist the Assyrians to fight the Babylonians. And on the way, he gets into a fight with the king of Judah, Josiah. Josiah is killed in battle and he continues uh, to the north to help his Assyrian buddies. But ultimately, the uh, king of Babylon defeats the Pharaoh and defeats the Assyrians and they are then his vassals. So now Assyria is off the scene and Nebuchadnezzar happens to be the king at the time when Jerusalem is attacked. Now I'm just kind of giving you the brief version because in fact Babylon, uh, Judah was at one point a vassal kingdom of Babylon. Then they kind of tried to rebel. So Nebuchadnezzar comes down and he's quite vicious. He decides because this wasn't just a regular first time knocking on the door, I'm going to take you guys and leave your city. Judah had rebelled against him several times. So he decides to flatten Jerusalem. And he destroys Solomon's temple. Remember the, the temple that Solomon built in the 900s? It's wiped out. Tears down the wall, wipes the whole place out. Now the outlying towns and areas fared much better. But there are, there are several deportation dates now where Nebuchadnezzar or one of the Babylonian kings starts to take people from Judah back to Babylon. And the dates are 597, 587, 582. Now, 586 is the number to keep in your head because that's when Jerusalem fell for the final time. And now all the cream of the crop from the south are taken to Babylon. Who are some of these individuals? These guys. Daniel, Ezekiel. These would have been noblemen or high-ranking, from high-ranking families, guys like this are taken to Babylon and spend the rest of their lives there. Now, not all the Judeans were deported, and not all the ones that weren't deported stayed. Several of them took off, immigrated to Moab, Ammon, Edom, Egypt. In fact, in... Um, in places like uh, Egypt, the diaspora that was there existed for several centuries thereafter. Now, this uh, exile to the north has an ending date to it. In 539, after 70 years of captivity, the Babylonian kingdom falls to the Persians. So world history, who's the superpower? Assyria, Babylon, and the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The Persian king that conquered Babylon was Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great, in 539, conquers Babylon. And the very next year, he issues a famous decree, which you can read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, the decree of Cyrus, he says, you can all go home. 
And he even goes into the Babylonian treasury. This is a quite a interesting thing. And says, you can take all your gold and your silver and all the stuff you used in your temple. You can take that all back with you. Now, apparently this was not an unusual step for a Persian king because the Persian kings believed in religious pluralism. And in order to keep their vassals happy, they were okay with them worshiping their own gods. So they sent the Jews, or allowed the Jews, they didn't have to go, allowed the Jews to return to uh, Judah and to start rebuilding the temple. Now, in between 586 and 539, 70 years, what do you think was happening in Canaan? Well, several things. The Philistines moved in. The Ammonites moved in. The Edomites moved in. People from Tyre and Sidon in the north, the Phoenicians, moved in. Many of the people that have been left behind took over the wealthy people's farms, took over the wealthy people's towns. So now you have all these Jews coming back, probably around 30,000 of them, as best as we can tell, come back in a series of waves, a series of um, a lie, as we call them, a return to the land. And now you got, you know, Sanballat, the Horite, and you got an Edomite. You got all these guys kind of causing them trouble. And they're reporting back to Cyrus saying, hey, they're trying to rebel against you. So they're making up lies. They're trying to give them a hassle. So it takes them 23 years to build the second temple because of all the hassle they were getting. Even though they, they, they weren't attacked during that time, they had no natural enemies that time. They were being uh, militarily protected by Cyrus the Great. So this was a difficult time for them to rebuild the land. It's actually very similar to what happened from 1948 onward. The British mandate, yeah, you can go back to the land. Okay, well, that's great, but five Arab nations attack. You're trying to like dig wells. You're trying to get a government up and running. You're trying to get a schooling system. So this was a very difficult and trying time for them. And um, during the exile... Judah had become what was known as an administrative district of Babylon. So it was not a country anymore. And when uh, during that period of time, it had a governor. And later, when the uh, Persians took over the world, so to speak, they also considered it sort of an auxiliary administrative district. So they would also appoint a governor. Like Zerubbabel was the governor under Persia to run Judah in its much diminished fashion, and sort of enact his will and wishes. Just backtracking a little bit, immediately after the exile in 586, when Judah became an administrative district, it did not have a king anymore, but it had a governor. The governor's name was Gedaliah. He was the first governor, and he actually encouraged the Judites to emigrate, emigrate to surrounding nations for safety. And the rest of them, as I mentioned earlier, went to Egypt, Moab, Babylon, etc., so let's talk a little bit about the Babylonian kings. And in order to help you to understand this, I want you just to flip over in your Bible to Daniel chapter 5. Four and five. So beginning with chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes and my reason returned to me and so forth and so on. Now go down to chapter 5, verse 1. 
King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. What's interesting about that is that in chapter 4, there's one king ruling Babylon. In chapter 5, with no explanation, there's a new king ruling Babylon. The question then is, you know, what's going on here? Well, um, the Bible often jumps over information that you don't need to know about. But what is interesting is, and I'll erase this later so we can get back to our chart, when Nebuchadnezzar the second, which was the Nebuchadnezzar that attacked Jerusalem, the Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel originally served under, the Nebuchadnezzar that called Daniel into his court, the Nebuchadnezzar that, you know, put him in the lion's den and all that kind of stuff. When he died, he was succeeded by the following kings. Amel Marduk, his son, that guy gets killed. Nergaleser, that guy's out. Labashi Marduk, that guy's out. Nabonidus. So, interestingly, between chapter 4 and chapter 5, it didn't go from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. There's one, two, three, three kings in between. Now, technically, Belshazzar was never the king, so why is he called the king? Because Nabonidus was his father, and Nabonidus was a hands-off king who allowed his son, Belshazzar, to rule Babylon. But I point this out because when we're reading the Bible, you might almost get the, get the notion that you know, Daniel's having like a, a different issue every day, when in fact the issue that he's confronting, confronted with in chapter 4 is four kings earlier than the issue that he's confronted with in chapter 5. So Daniel probably went to Babylon as a young man, maybe 15, 12, 15, 16 years old, and spent the majority of his life there, died there. They were there for 70 years, so he would have died as an old man. And he must have been quite a guy because king after king after king after king keeps Daniel in his cabinet as one of his chief eunuchs. And by the way, Daniel probably was a eunuch. That was the the custom of the day, so... He wouldn't have been able to have a family or any offspring, but he would have served in the king king's court as such. Now, Daniel gives us a glimpse into what life was like for the Jews during the ba- Babylonian exile. We don't really know what it was like in Assyria, but Daniel gives us a glimpse of some of the things that they experienced during the Babylonian exile. I'll just point to a couple of them. Go back to chapter 1 of Daniel. And I want you to pay careful attention to chapter 7. I want you to read chapter 7 and tell me what is interesting. Sorry, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. And tell me what's interesting about that. What happened to them? Yeah, so we got Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Those are all what names? Jewish-sounding names. They take those away, and Daniel's called Belshazzar, not Belshazzar, but Belshazzar. And then there's the famous Rakshak and Benny, right, from the <laughs> Veggie Tales, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they get these names 
that are Babylonian names, what's, what are they trying to do? Think about, think about it from a political perspective. Nebuchadnezzar is inviting Jews and Ninevites and Indians and all these different people into his government. What's, what does he want? Why would he do that? Assimilation. That's the key word. He wants to assimilate them. He wants to benefit. He doesn't just want to go out and kill everybody. He wants the cream of the crop, the best of the best. But in order to assimilate, you strip away their names. You give them Babylonian names, Babylonian identities, and bring them in. Now, interestingly, these people did not assimilate, at least the good guys did not assimilate religiously. Daniel, under great pressure and under the risk of death, continues to worship Yahweh God throughout his entire life. So assimilation is one of the things that they would have experienced when they were in uh, the uh, the land of Babylon. And then another thing they experienced we can observe in chapter 3, verse 8. Now, keep in mind that another word for a Babylonian is a Chaldean. So the land of the Chaldees or Chaldees, if you see that in the Bible, that think Babylon. So with that in mind... What happens in chapter 3, verse 8? What would you call that? Starts with a P. Persecution. Exactly. So they experienced malice. In this situation, they're asked to worship a foreign deity. It's the image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And it's all a big setup. And the... The governing officials are trying to wipe out Daniel and his buddies because they don't like the fact they worship the true living God. Daniel doesn't. So they go to the Chaldeans and they accuse the Jews. Notice Jews. This is the language you're going to see from exile onward. Judah, Jews. The the word Jew comes from Judah. And now this language is going to be increasingly used in reference to them. So... I mean, they experienced a measure of prosperity, of course. Daniel had a job, was well-fed, but they also were at risk of assimilation, and further, they experienced malice multiple times for their faith in God. Let's talk a little bit about the southern prophets. So, let me see here. I have uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Okay. We're going to have two or three. So I would like for the three of you to take um, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah. Okay. You two, Micah. You two, Habakkuk. Um, Zephaniah. Two here, Lamentations. You two guys, Ezekiel. Ways Daniel. Okay. Yeah, same questions. Bobex, uh, Obadiah. Uh, one. Okay. Um, all four of you can take um, Joel and then Haggai. Zechariah 
and at the back, Malachi. Now, you can pretty much find the answer to the first question in most of them in the opening verse or two. But you might have to look at a few more. I'm going to go around and give you some specific... You all know what your prophet is? Okay. And by the way, you have about 10 minutes, and when you're done, you can have your snack. If you don't get it done, you don't get snack tonight. <laughs> okay, so let's start with Isaiah. What did you find out about Isaiah? What did you find out about Isaiah? Same time period, 8th century. Okay, 8th century prophet. Who's he uh, prophesying to? Okay, so Judah and Jerusalem, so that's all Judah, right? So, he, so did you hear that? The fact that he's prophesying against Judah and Jerusalem tells you that he's a southern prophet. So you now know what people he's addressing. So south, and what's his, I mean, of course Isaiah is a massive book, but how would you just, maybe a key theme there? Okay, the rejection of? Okay. Okay. So this, when you think of these first three prophets, you're thinking 700s. How about Jeremiah? Jeremiah, the latter part of the 7th century. Okay. 7th century? 7th into the early beginning of the 6th, I think. Okay. Okay. Prophesying to who? Judah. Judah, so south. And big theme. Big theme that uh, if they didn't stop the idolatry and all their sinning, that uh, the Babylonians, with God's approval, would sweep down from the north and Okay, did you hear that? The very fact, because one other group's going to address this tonight too, the fact that Jeremiah is threatening them with the Babylonians, now that you know Israeli history, you can put two and two together and say, well, then this has to be pre-exile, and it has to be south. Because the north never had to worry about Babylon. Assyria had taken them before Babylon rose to power. So if you're ever reading a prophet, and there's any reference to the threat of Babylon, it's the south. If it's Assyria, it's the north. So it's an earlier book, by definition. You see? So now how about Micah? So, what did you find out about Micah? That, uh, he was during uh, plays like Hezekiah, Ahaz, so it's in the 8th century. Okay. Yep. So he was actually attacking uh, the both north and southern. Okay. So he does. Okay. Good. Okay, remnant good. Uh, and you actually there's some prophecy about you know, future Messiah 
Epaphra, is that in chapter 5? Yeah. Okay, so remnant theology is an important theme. You're going to actually notice a recycling of themes, justice, idolatry, there'll be a remnant, messianic passages in the prophets. They, they do tend to recycle. Don't think of prophecy in the Old Testament necessarily as original. That's not the goal. They're policing the covenant. Think of them as police officers of the old of the old covenant. Okay, good. Okay, Habakkuk. Okay, how do we know that? Okay. Now they don't tell us what kings he was reigning during, right? So all we know is it's pre-exile. So the best we can do is put uh, pre-586. Um, but it would have to be um, after the Babylonians sacked the Assyrians in 605. So you have a window, a pretty tight window actually, was that 20 years, but but you don't you it could be seventh century could be sixth century. So he's prophesying to the south, and I actually had a chat with the team because they were like, well, how do we know, right? Well, the fact that he's raising up the Babylonians, you automatically think south. Pardon me? Yeah, you automatically think south. So what's Habakkuk's basic theme, by the way? Okay. Okay. There we go. Zephaniah. Who had Zephaniah? So you found that in the book, or did you? You're not supposed to. Oh, you're doing the study Bible thing. Okay. Okay. So what century, sorry? Seventh century, okay. 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 So seek Yahweh and uh, judgment. Okay. Very good. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Just wanted to make sure you weren't checking out your study Bible. So um, these prophets that we've looked at, I've already drawn the line for you here. These are what we call pre-exilic prophets of the south. So these are southern, these are pre-exilic. In that they are testifying prior to the exile. This is very important when you're studying any book of the Bible to understand its original setting. You don't need to know every detail, but you have to know like what were the basic circumstances that the original recipients found themselves in, and when was the time period, as best as we can tell. That's going to turn on a lot of light bulbs for you when you're reading through the text. It's going to really help you to understand why is he threatening them with the Edomites? Why is he threatening them with the Moabites? Why is he threatening them with an, an invasion from Egypt? What were the circumstances they were in? And when you figure that out, then you're like, ah, now I know why he's threatening with this, or he's promising them this, or he's encouraging them with this, and so forth and so on.
So now we're at Lamentations. Now, uh, we have to, first of all, spill the beans here and say, we don't know for sure, but tradition tells us that Jeremiah wrote it. But something happened between the writing of the book we now know as Jeremiah and Lamentations. So who has Lamentations? Uh, okay. It says it was written at uh, 536. Oh, it says that in the book? You're not allowed to be looking at that stuff. No, no, you're supposed to be figuring it out for yourself. <laughs> Why argue, right? <laughs> so let's, if you look at the book, though, why would the book suggest a date? Let's, let's say you don't have a study Bible, so you're operating pre-1950. Um, how do you know that he's writing right around the time that the exile started? Okay. Good. Yeah. So mentions Jerusalem falling. So if you look at verse three of chapter one, Judah has gone into exile. Because of her affliction, voila, it's clearly an exilic book. Just that one little phrase tells you, right? So then we're talking 6th century and south. What's the basic theme of Lamentations? Okay. So we have, basically, think of a lament. What are you doing when you're lamenting? You're crying, you're upset. So Jeremiah writes Jeremiah leading up to the exile. Lamentations, somewhere around the beginning of it, presumably. And he's pouring out his heart. He's bemoaning the fact that they did not worship Yahweh. And now they've been taken away. So whether Jeremiah was writing specifically from uh, as a as a part of the remnant, not Jer not Jeremiah, he would have been dead by the time the rebuilding started because now we got seventy years, so it's a whole new generation. Unless there's a five year old that's taken and he comes back when he's seventy five, you're talking about a couple generations down. But basically, he's, he's lamenting it, but in Chapter 3 of Lamentations, there's a real focus on the steadfast love of God, the love of God for his people, all he's going to do for them. So even now, what we will see in, in pre-exilic books, it's like you guys suck. In exilic books, you suck, but God still loves you. So there's always themes of hope and promise that come through. And post-exilic books, it's don't do it again. Those kind of themes are going to come across. So lamentations, uh, tears, and hope. Okay? Okay, how about Ezekiel? Again, kind of a long book. What do we learn from Ezekiel? Good question. 
Okay. How'd you, how'd you find that out? Yeah. Okay, so so you got to go the other way, right? Did you say 570? 572. 586 Oh, okay, yep, okay, yep. Yeah, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Kudos. One for you, one for you. <laughs> Were we talking about math before class tonight? <laughs> Okay, so uh, Ezekiel is 6th century, south, and future events. Now, he's writing from where? From where? From Babylon. So this is crucial. These other prophets are writing within the confines of Israel or Judah. The exilic prophets are not writing down in Judah and FedExing them up. They're writing from captivity. Now, when you think of captivity, don't think of it as everyone's in a little cage. Like they set up new villages. They were essentially free people. I mean, they were they had to stay in certain areas, just like the people of Israel had to stay in Goshen when they were in Egypt. But they were they were living their regular lives. I mean, more of them didn't return to Judah at the end of the captivity than returned. Most people stayed there. There was a, um, you might be interested in knowing that up to the Middle Ages, Jews stayed in Babylon. From the 6th century up to the Middle Ages. So well over 1,500 years. A remnant of Jews who only, you know, married Jews who practiced their faith stayed in the area that we know as Babylon. Okay, how about Daniel? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Very good. Okay, so we have south, but keep in mind they're not in the south now, they're just the southern people. They're in the north, north-north. And uh, future events, um, perseverance. I mean, I'm making words up here. I'm putting words in your What words did you give me? Okay. Okay, very good. Now, we're going to flip our board around. Actually, I want to show you something. Um, I don't know, Josie. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's possible. Okay, I want to show you a little something about Daniel that I've always found kind of neat. 
So Daniel is um, 12 chapters long. And the, the language that the Babylonians would have spoken, the lingua franca, the, the language of Mesopotamia at the time, is, uh, is Aramaic. And the language of the Jews is Hebrew. Now, Aramaic square is the name of the Hebrew alphabet. So they're using the same alphabet, just like the French, the English, the Germans today. We all use the same alphabet. But it's a different language. And so people like Daniel living in Babylon would have spoken to the king and to his Babylonian friends in Aramaic. But Hebrew was the language of their scriptures, their Torah, and the language of their specific people group. Well, interestingly, Daniel chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. Okay? Daniel uh, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7... Aramaic. Daniel 8 to 12, Hebrew. So, only the Jews could have read chapter 1 and chapters 8 to 12. But the Babylonians could have read 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. So if you look at chapter 2, uh, the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king summons his enchanters, magicians, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell them his dreams. So he came and the king said, so from verse 3 onward, it's Aramaic. And what you'll find is interesting, and this this is a, a, an actual deliberate structural uh, tactic. It's called a, a chiasm where the events of this chapter and this chapter match this chapter and this chapter match this chapter and this chapter match so you have a dream in chapter 2 you have a vision in chapter 7 you have a golden image and a fiery furnace in chapter 3. You have a lion's den in chapter 6. Same kind of thing, right? You're thrown into a lion's den, thrown into a furnace. Um, in chapter 3, uh, where am I here? 4, 5. In chapter 4, and chapter 5, you have dreams being interpreted by these two kings. Now, right in the center of all of this, and in between chapters 4 and 5, now keep in mind that we've added the chapter references, so you're looking at the clumps of material, not our division necessarily, but right in the middle of this, look what it says. Verse 34, we read it earlier. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, now who is Nebuchadnezzar? The king of the universe 
the king of kings, the king of the world. These were his political titles. Lifted up his eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then listen to this, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is unbelievable, because this then sends a message out in Aramaic to the inhabitants of the earth that the king of kings has bowed his knee to the true king of kings. And everything before is only stuff that the Hebrews need to read about. The challenge of Daniel to live his faith. Chapters, pretty much from chapter 9 onward, it's all prophecy about the future. Only the Hebrews need to know that. This is the largest Aramaic section of the Bible, and it's structured this way. They would have read it sort of like this. 2, 7, 3, 6, 4, 5. And then the pinnacle that your eye is supposed to be drawn to is the king of kings affirming higher king of kings. So this is an exilic book, of course, and what this does is this, like, what else can you say to encourage people in captivity? Well, you might be in captivity, but the king of kings actually has bowed his knee to your God. So there's hope. Now, the message is really not all that powerful if everything's hunky-dory, but the fact that you know it's an exilic book, now you can put neon lights around the message because it's all the more important. There's other places in the Bible where God's declared the king of kings, but not by the king of the world. Not when his people have been taken from their holy land into into captivity okay so let's go to uh, obadiah he's the final exilic prophet and what do we learn about him There's different inter- yeah like yeah some of them some prophets are more specific they're naming a king some of them are a little bit, you know, more difficult. Uh, yeah, apparently verse 11 to 14 speaks to the, uh, the fall of Jerusalem, which took place in 586 BC. Uh-huh. That verse 20 that you said, uh, the exile of Jerusalem, so it's probably sometime after the 6th century. Yeah, okay. Um, that's probably when they returned. They returned to the southern kingdom. Okay, so south and kind of a prophecy against Edom. Sometimes you'll see this in the prophets where they're encouraging the people of God by, oh, no wonder this is all messed up, by speaking out against other nations like the Moabites who were pestering them or belittling them or threatening them. So maybe they're aware of the fact that the Edomites were moving into their old lands and maybe that kind of upset them. So God might have been writing this to sort of encourage them. So prophecy against uh, Edom. Descendants of Esau. Okay. So all of these, to flip the board, these are all exilic. Some like Obadiah, you know, maybe later, but probably an exilic prophet. 
How about Joel? This is one of the ones that uh, we're not real sure about as well. Yeah. Yeah, the very fact like he's talking about Jerusalem being holy and strangers shall never again pass through it, unless he's just talking about people wandering through it, which probably wouldn't be the way we'd want to interpret it because the Jews never totally banned foreigners from coming to the temple. There was actually the Gentile court. So we're probably talking about strangers coming in in a bit more of a cataclysmic way, i.e. the Babylonian invasion. So that's why we're probably talking about a post-exilic prophet. Yeah. And Jerusalem tips us off that it's southern, right? Okay, so we have we have sometime post-exile. So after the exile, south. What's his basic theme or basic message? Okay. What's the most famous chapter of Joel? Yeah. Joel 2, where it talks about in the latter days and talks about all the things. In fact, if you read from 28 onward, you see things taking place that took place at Pentecost, 50 days after Christ's ascension. So I believe the prophecy of Joel 2 is not future from our perspective, it's historical, but from the perspective of the original recipients, it was future. Okay, good. How about Haggai? By the way, why are these not in order in our Bible? Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zechariah, Mal. Why are they not in order? They rhyme better? Okay, that's one possibility. <laughs> Very simply, largest book to smallest book. So the major prophets are called major prophets, not because they had a major message and the minor prophets had minor prophets, uh, minor me uh, messages, but... Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, they're big books. They're called the major prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Mike, and so forth. Minor prophets. And they're organized from larger to smaller. That's the only reason why. But if you're reading them sequentially, you could be reading pre-exile, exile, post-exile, and back again. And really, if you wanted to organize them a little more chronologically, it would make sense. Same with First and Second Chronicles. Have you ever wondered what? If you've read through your Bible, you read through First and Second Kings, and you get it all again in First Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles are post-exilic. First and Second Kings are pre-exilic. So the chronicler 
wanted the people returning from the exile to hear about their history. So he rewrote the events of their history and distributed it. We don't know who the chronicler was, but if we organized our Bible in terms of when they were written, the books of First and Second Chronicles would be post-Southern exile. First and Second Kings would be pre. Okay. Now, um, okay, Haggai. Who's who has Haggai? Oh yeah. Okay. Very specific. So the second year of Darius. So when is the first year of Darius? 539. So right around 540. Very specific. So 6. Sorry. There you go, Robert. 538. I got to think the other way. I got to think BC. Okay. Um, so north or south? South. And what's the what's his major message, Paul? Pardon me. Okay, encouragement to rebuild the temple. Excellent. This is a major theme of the post-exilic uh, prophets. A courage to rebuild. Excellent. Okay, Zechariah. Post-exilic. Okay. Yeah. So obviously it's south. What's his uh, major message? Sorry? Okay, return to the Lord. Okay. And rebuild. Okay, last but not least, the only Italian prophet, Malachi. Um, what do we know about him? What can we pick up from the book? Sorry? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't let you look at your uh, study notes, eh? <laughs> it's, Malachi is, again, he doesn't start off with, you know, this is what this is the second year of Darius, or this is when such and such a king. So you got to sort of read between the lines. But did you get any hints or tips from the text? It's wrong. It's wrong. So that guy sees it as pre-exilic. <laughs> Are you one of those guys who use Cole's notes for exams in school? <laughs> okay, I'm going to point you to a couple. Look at the first chapter, and we sort of we sort of have to um, read into it a little bit. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is it not evil? Present to your governor. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Why not king? Why not priest? Why not governor? Because the only time the nation of Israel was being ruled by a governor was post-exile. And the fact that he's talking about offering these things implies the temple's been rebuilt. 
which happened 23 years after the return to the land. So the reason why Malachi ends up at the end of our Bible is because we think it's the last book written in the Old Testament and would have been written if you look at the... Dec- the th- uh, 539, I'm going to get Ro- smart Alec Robert to figure this out, minus 23 is what, Robert? He's got his calculator out, 516, okay, 516. So sometime after that, some people have suggested as far as into the 400s. So writing to the south, now did you pick up the major message? Okay. 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 Yeah. Okay. So God's love, um, corrupt priesthood. Now this is a theme. This is a theme in the Old Testament. Here's the Old Testament depicted in uh, visual form. Here's the spiritual climate. That's the Old Testament. By the way, that's our lives too, right? The highs and the lows. So you think, how could you spend 70 years in exile, see 10 of your northern brothers taken into captivity, never return, have Sanballat and all of his buddies pester you and pick on you for 23 years while you're trying to rebuild the temple, finally get it rebuilt, and you got a bunch of knuckleheads running the show, and everyone's back to their old practices. I guess Joel too was right. You need the Spirit to write the law of God on your heart. So from Malachi onward, really what they got to wait for is Christ. And um, what we're going to see next week is how the people fared. Now this is where we get to step outside the Bible again and we get to look at the apocryphal books and we have to look at uh, other historical texts from roughly the 400s to Christ. What was going on with these people? How were they functioning spiritually? What were the threats they experienced? What did their quote-unquote priesthood look like? Those are the things we're going to look at in the coming week. But I, I hope this has been help. This part's been helpful. I have a few more things to share. I hope this part's been helpful for you because it's very important to understand, especially when you're reading prophecy, which is predicting events or reminding them of events, what the circumstances were. Okay. So, any questions about any of the material we've covered tonight with regard to the? These are all called post-exilic prophets, by the way post-exilic. So if, if you're reading this in a commentary, what's post-exilic, now you know. Let me share a few things with you pertaining to um, life in Palestine after the exile. So as I mentioned to you earlier, several people opportunists moved into the land when Judah was taken out. The Philistines were in close geographical proximity because they were up against the Mediterranean. They just sort of move a little bit to the east and they can start taking over the land. The Ammonites came in from the Transjordan 
into the land. Who are the Ammonites? What's the history of the Ammonites? Okay, Lot, one of the sons of Moab and Ammon, brother nations. Same dad, their mothers were sisters who were the daughters of Lot. So they come in and they occupy the land. Now, they're not, not occupying it in the sense of having kings or any nation. They're just living there, much like the Arabs were living there when the Jews returned in 1948. It was just, it belonged to someone else, Britain, but they were just living there. No problem. Now, in 722, when, when Samaria fell, that is when, as I mentioned to you several times, the Assyrians imported people that they had captured in other areas. So now when, think 722, so in and around that time, they come into the north, 586, south goes out, they're gone for 70 years, so 539. So you're talking almost 200 years for the people that the Assyrians brought in to set up shop, to intermarry with one another, including the Jewish remnant. So after 200 years, you have a new people group. What's the name of this people group? The Samaritans. The Samaritans. Remember the good Samaritan? Okay. There's a couple reasons why the Jews and the Samaritans butted heads. The first is that the Samaritans were one of the people groups that opposed the rebuilding of the temple under Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel and all those guys. Actually, Zerubbabel was dead by the time the temple was completed. Maybe he tried to start a revolt, some historian saying was taken back to Babylon, who knows. But uh, they opposed the rebuilding of the temple because they had picked a different mountain, which they thought represented the, the house of God, Mount Gerizim. And the second reason why they were hated by the Jews is because they were considered, uh, what would be the word, um, of mixed blood. They were half Jews, half whatever these other people groups were. And as, you know, throughout history, people tend to draw lines in the sand over their bloodlines. So it caused animosity for those two reasons. But this is where the Samaritans came from. So if you're ever interested in why Jesus thought it was you know, quite something for the Good Samaritan to be the only guy to take an interest and the guy on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's because Jesus' countrymen would have viewed that Samaritan as a lowlife. And the fact that he shows more moral integrity than everyone else is significant. There's still a lot of prejudice against the Samaritans today. There's less than 700 of them in Israel that declare themselves to be Samaritans. They're not allowed to take out Israeli citizenship unless they convert to Judaism. So when they convert to Judaism, well, they're sort of no longer Samaritans. So there's a, a real attempt to sort of uh, bring them back into the fold, so to speak, or you could say breed them out. And uh, because they're a small people group, they're almost on the verge of extinction today. Uh, Israel... Uh, has has never functioned as an independent country in any way, shape, or form from 586 to 1948. 586 to 1948. 
because even when the Jews came back, it was still considered a district under the rule of Persia. When Persia, we'll talk about this more next week, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit now. When Persia was taken over by who? Who beat out the Persians? What was the next big world empire? Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greeks. So Alexander the Great Hellenizes the world. And that's the word for like Greekification, Hellenism. He then, uh, he and his descendants and his people rule up to just a little while before Christ. And then you have Rome on the scene. So the whole time the Jews are under someone's authority. And then from the time of Christ, right up till 1948, there's no country. So interestingly, they have to wait uh, almost 2,500 years in and around 2,500 years. But you can understand why they're pretty excited about having their land and they're pretty adamant about keeping it. Because for 2,500 years, there's been no Jewish nation living in Canaan. Zerubbabel was appointed the governor of the land and the land was renamed Yahud. So this was the name of the land that we know as Israel, under the Persian uh, administrative rule. And the way it would work is, in Daniel, Daniel, uh, it, there's some humor in it. Um, there's uh, one of the literary techniques when Daniel's about to be challenged or his friends are about to be challenged is there's repetition. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the zither, and all the king's men are about, and then they repeat it. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, like why do you have to say musical instruments, right? <laughs> or they say, and all the satraps, the prefix, the governors, all the satraps, the prefix, the governors, all the sat, it's building tension. Well, satraps, the Persian Empire was divided into what was called satrapsies, administrative districts, and within those districts, there were governorships. So Yahud would have been a satrapsy, specifically a governorship within a satrapsy, and there would have been a satrap ruling and then the governor. So Zerubbabel would have been the governor. He was responsible to a satrap who would report back through their structure up to the king, uh, Cyrus the Great. Okay? Uh, when Cyrus, just a couple things about uh, Cyrus' decree. So he conquers Babylon 539, takes him about a year to issue the decree. He's going to return the temple vessels. According to Persian records, around 42,000 return. Not all at once, several years, but approximately 42,000 return. So this would um, obviously be composed probably exclusively with few exceptions of people that had never before been to the land. So they were moving out on faith to a land they'd never been to that their grandfathers were in. And as I mentioned to you, many of them stay in uh, Babylon until the Middle Ages. So this is an interesting thing about the Jews. Many Jewish people have integrated and assimilated with their surrounding peoples, but many of them have been able to create their own identities and maintain their own communities in the midst of other communities for centuries. Few other people groups do that. Okay, so, um, you know, the Irish come, 1850, great potato famine. Who here is Irish of Irish descent? 
Okay, do we really think of ourselves as Irish? No. Um, Germans come just on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Germans come, couple generations, they're integrated. Italians come, couple generations, they're integrated. Right? That's how it works. But the Jews are able to maintain these distinct colonies for centuries. Morocco, right up until probably the 1950s, 1960s, there were Jewish colonies. Like, how far away is Morocco from, you know, Palestine, the other side of African continent? So a lot of these people groups were able to maintain their identity, and then that's what enabled them to en masse return to the land post-1948. Okay, any questions then that you might have before we wind up about the period of the exile or the immediate events coming thereafter? All right, well, enjoy your evening. We'll uh, see you next week.